Welcome to Founders of Nations. Conversations with an Australian. Today is the first in a series of interviews with people from the countries we're going to be talking about. Today I'm going to be talking to Alan McLeod about his home country, Australia, and the founders of Australia. So let's get started. I really like the international flavor to it because I, uh, I travel a lot. I was living overseas the last 12 years working as a tour guide with a travel company. Oh, nice. So um, having traveled a lot and then just by that interest and for the job, having to learn a lot about different countries, histories and politics and, and mm. cultures and stuff. Yeah. So anything that's to do with, you know, on an international level, I, I really like. So when you put the post up, I was like, oh, that sounds cool and interesting. And uh, having been a tour guide here in Australia for a number of years, I know a little bit more than probably the average Joe of just a bit more of the details of Australia's history. So Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. so have you done any uh, any study on the history of other countries doing tours? You yeah, like a bit. I mean, a to... um, little bit. Probably when it comes to like their founders, not as much, but just generally their history and and you know differences between um, you know whether they're republics or if they're still uh, monarchists or stuff like that. But um, I lived in New Zealand for a few years. I lived in Japan for a few years. I lived in the UK and I lived in Austria in Europe for a few years and most recently I was living in Canada the past two and a half years. Okay. So nice. just learning in general about their different countries and a bit of their politics and stuff. But when it comes to their founders, um, that would be a lot harder. Um, I did used to remember, I made a point of learning the first prime minister's name of Canada, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, New Zealand, Canada and Australia have somewhat similar histories or at least similar situations now where we are constitutional monarchies. Yeah, yeah, they're still loving the Commonwealth and, and we tell each other we're in a democracy, but deep down, you know, there's always the royal family who have the final say, <laughs> final pen stroke on everything. Even when we democratically elect a leader, it's still going to be signed off by the Queen. You're like, nah, that's still pretty strong. <laughs> Um, but we like to convince ourselves we live in a democracy. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, people can debate that all day long. But um, I like the, I like the yeah I like the idea of it. So, what can I do for you? What do you what do you want to do? What uh, what do you want to ask some questions? What do you want to chat about? Yeah. So I was thinking, kind of the, the first thing we could talk about is uh, so in the limited research I've done, I've come up with a few different names for founders from talking to different Australians and then looking at different things. So. I've got four names here that, you know, maybe way off because I know just the basic outline of Australian history. So James Cook, Ned Kelly, Henry Parks, and Alfred Deacon. I think it's Deacon. Is it Deacon? Deacon, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so out of those four, what would you say is your understanding of, of which of those four you'd say is definitely the founder or if there's kind of a, a you know, a shared founding and then, Maybe what could you tell me about the others that we're not going to talk about? Maybe give a little brief outline of if, if yes. you know much about them. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're all four good characters. Um, two of them I know much more about. The other two I know of them, but don't really know much more beyond their their names and roughly sure. their fields they were in. Um, I would say of the four, uh, James Cook or Captain Cook, as he now gets known as, um, is probably the most known one. 
um, for me and for most Australians. Um, he obviously had this, like, lots of grand stories about him now and and was one of, the one of, if not the first, they say, Europeans to sail the East Coast and map it and explore mm. it and name a bunch of places. And they say that he was the first one to claim it as British territory. So, you know, like a real founding, like like a geographical, like an actual physical founding, mm. he would definitely be a standout. Um, the others have played, I guess, yeah, important roles in their, in their respective field. Um, Alfred Deakin was our second prime minister of the country uh, after the first, who was Edmund Barton. And other than being our second prime minister, I don't know much about him. We have a university named after him. So he was obviously um, regarded uh, fairly highly and, and people want to pay respects and credit to him um, for naming a university after him. But, considering that was in the early 1900s, over 100 years ago, um, <laughs> other than knowing that he was our second prime minister and that there's a university named after him, I wouldn't know much more about him. Um, Parks, probably even less. Um, I heard of his name. I'm at a guess, I think, in some sort of science and research, I believe rings a bell, but I might be completely wrong. Yeah, I, I think from uh, what little I looked up, he was... He was. He did other stuff like I think it was science, but then he also helped write the constitution. He was some sort of important person. Okay. I really have no idea. Definitely could've not been. him, though. If we're talking about, <laughs> could have could have been. Again, I recognize the name, and yeah, at a guess, some sort of science field. But um, yeah, it could have even been yeah something more very foundational, which uh would not have even known um. And then uh, Ned Kelly is um, an interesting character. There's a lot of stories about him. And obviously his like yeah. legend goes far and wide. But oh. um, as, like, as an actual founder, he didn't really do anything for the country and didn't really found anything. It's just more his stories kind of encapsulate a bit of the culture and they've mm. been turned into a bit of like cult status, a bit of hero status, mm. even though he was a lawbreaker and... Um, you know, did a lot of illegal things and probably not kind of characteristics that you should hold up as a <laughs> as a model citizen. But I think that the bigger picture that he was that typical uh, Irish Catholic immigrant mm. or son of immigrants. I can't remember if he was actually born here and his parents were immigrants or he, if he was an immigrant himself. But either way, strong Catholic Irish background, like so many um, that moved here, and they were often oppressed and persecuted by the dominant English Protestant rule. So there was always this back and forth um, between those two areas, between those two sort of groups of people. Um, and so he was kind of one of the ones, a bit of a rebel who stood up against the, the authorities at the time, mm -hmm. even though arguably he was doing some illegal things. Um, <laughs> yeah, they definitely felt the Irish and the, um, Catholics and the Scottish definitely felt that they were getting uh, getting a rough deal when the English Protestants were all in charge and they made up all the authority figures. So um, he would kind of push the envelope and push the boundary and challenge that kind of status quo. Um, so that's what he became known for. And the fact so, that um, Australia was founded on, yeah, um, these 
immigrant convicts, often Irish and Catholic and Scottish, kind of encapsulates that part of the history in this one guy and his kind of push against the authority. Um, and his, his story is, is fairly well known, mixed with the fact that he used to wear a bucket on his head and have like a, a spot cut out for his eyes so he could see <laughs> um, when he would go into skirmishes, like gun skirmishes and gun uh-huh. fights with the army. They were all doing most of this on horseback back in the day. Mm. Um, so it, like not only his story, but also there's a, there's a physical like image to go with him as well, you know, um, almost like a brand, like a, yeah, like a, you know, <laughs> image. So, um, Bucket-headed riding he, on a horse. Yeah, exactly. Like that just spells Ned Kelly. Um, and he also, when he, he was finally caught and hung, in the Melbourne jail, which is a, a jail that still exists today, not for inmates, but you can go and take like a history tour of it, which is really cool. I've been and done it. And you actually go and see the hanging gallows where they hung Ned Kelly. Wow. Um, just, we'll just go and see that bit of history uh-huh. still there. And one of his famous words when he, either when he was caught or just before they hung him, I can't remember. One of his famous words was such is life. <laughs> That's what he said. They're like, have you got anything to say for yourself? You know, like, and he says, such is life. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes you get caught, sometimes you get hung, sometimes you wear a bucket on your head. Such is life. <laughs> so, excellent, excellent. Um, that kind of line with his helmet head, and then mm. yeah, the the story kind of makes him a real a real character, mm. even though there's not really that much foundering that he did. Mm. Um, yeah, he's definitely a, a cultural icon. Right, um, so and then it's been made more and more through the stories and and um, lots of like books written on him and movies. And then there was a famous <laughs> movie made with, with the late uh, Heath Ledger in it. So obviously that brought it even oh. more to cult status, having a good-looking actor play play the part <laughs> and, you know, watching it on TV now um, and that everybody knows who he is, mm. even though um, what he actually did is arguably a bit dubious and not something really to be... Um, to be emulated. Fun mm. fact for you, I, you'd have to double check this, but I believe I've been told that Ned Kelly, the name, is one of only a few names that in the country it's actually illegal to call your child, to name your child Ned <laughs> Kelly. Oh, goodness. Wow. Because it has this rebellious, like uh-huh. almost terrorist-like connotation <laughs> or name to it. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's just a rumor I'll have or to not. Look that but- up. But it is a, a loosely said fun fact around the pubs that you can't uh-huh. actually, it's legal to name your kid Ned Kelly. <laughs> so, so it sounds like yeah. he's kind of a, like a folk hero. A real folk hero, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Maybe um, like what, what Robin Hood really was like back uh, a thousand very years much like, ago. <laughs> like, yeah. And that was the thing that he, um, even though he did some illegal things, it was often to the, the ruling parties and then it was more to help him and his family and his other kind of oppressed parties of the irish catholics so Mm. in that in that sense yeah it very much has grown into kind of like a robin hood type tale Mm. surely embellished over the years but (laughs) that's what it's great yeah and then uh yeah so they're they're the four um that you mentioned um it's interesting that you mentioned uh alfred deacon the, the second prime minister um because a lot of people wouldn't know who he is unless they'd really heard of the university. Mm. Um, and our first prime minister was a guy called Edmund Barton, which majority, like I'm talking like 90% of Australians wouldn't know who our first prime minister is. 
But of course, Australians would know who George Washington is before they knew who Edmund <laughs> Barton was, which is crazy. That, that is funny. The first president of America is before we know who our own prime minister is. Um, I don't know what that says about our education is that, system. Is that Ned Kelly's fault? <laughs> maybe Ned Kelly's fault. Yeah, he took all the limelight for reading books on Ned Kelly instead of reading books on our prime minister. But um, I guess it has something to do with the fact that in 1901, when Australia became a, an official country, we that's our federation date, the 1st of January, 1901. Um, it was done just through the signing of a constitution. We didn't actually go to war for mm. our country to be created. Unlike the US, you obviously had a war of independence. You had these leaders. You had lots of people die for your independence. Mm. So you I give them more credit, right? You remember the people who died yes. for your country. We don't really remember the guy who signed a paper it's not as dramatic he didn't lay down his life he didn't spill blood um so yeah i guess uh you know it was more of a formality as opposed to a, a war of independence so the names get lost and don't really get honored and remembered as much so that makes sense so you'd say probably now uh, did i miss anybody you think of anybody else that might be up there in that same stratosphere as um in terms of founders um uh, or I guess like, yeah, on the founder famous kind of thing. Um, there's a guy called uh, Arthur Phillip and he actually played a huge role um, because he was the captain in charge of the lead ship of the group of 11 ships. That was the very first group of ships to sail from Britain to Australia, carrying the convicts to first oh, actually okay. populate so yeah, that that first uh, eleven boats uh, we call the first fleet, and the lead boat with the lead captain Arthur Phillip um, sailed out here in nineteen seventy uh, nineteen seventy eight, I believe. Nineteen seventy eight. Seventeen seventy eight. Seventeen seventeen seventy eight. So they yeah, they seventeen seventy eight. Um, they arrived here. I think they left in seventeen seventy seven. Because I only arrived here in January 1778. Um, I think it took like nine months or so for the 11 boats okay. to sail. Um, and that was the <gasps> first time that they actually planned to, to send people out here with them not coming back to like populate. So that was the first time it was actually like colonized. Um, and uh, so Arthur Phillip was in charge of that, that pretty, pretty bold mission to sail 11 boats with a couple of hundred odd convicts to come out here and try and actually populate, to actually settle, to build a little village, you know, to become self-sufficient, build farms, whatever, collect water. Um, and that was in January that they sailed into Sydney Harbour on the 26th of January and first set up camp and first planted the Union Jack. And, mm. and that's a day that every day we celebrate, every year we celebrate as Australia Day. Okay. 26th right. January. And that was off of his... Arthur Phillip and his expedition and his, his group, those 11 boats. So it's ironic that we celebrate every year Australia Day <laughs> on the 26th of January, but it's not the day that Australia was founded. It's <laughs> the day that Australia was colonized. It was just the first time that Europeans had set up camp here and decided to live here permanently, mm. which of course is very controversial these days I because bet. for the indigenous Australians it's called Invasion Day, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, Every year it gets even more and more controversial that a lot of people boycott it now. Um, wow. A lot of people or companies um, who used to do things, do events on the 26th, now do it the day before, the day after to, to show their kind of 
um, yeah, that they're not so happy with the idea of, of it being celebrated. Because mm. um, whilst it's been great for plenty of people in building a, you know, British Western culture, it wasn't great for the indigenous people um, mm. whose lives changed forever from that day onwards when their lands were lived in by, by Europeans, you know, and obviously there was a bit of mistreatment over the years. Mm. So, um, sure. yeah, Arthur Philip is, a, is another one that, that comes to mind in terms of the, the real founding of gotcha. Australia. Yeah, that yeah. kind of sounds similar to the U.S. nowadays. We've got, I don't know if you've heard of Juneteenth, but that's kind of a, an up-and-coming holiday that black people celebrate, or not all black people, but many black people celebrate as Independence Day, basically, mm-hmm. when the last slaves were freed. Yeah, yeah, I did hear about that, a bit about that this year. Um, and having lived next door in Canada and visited the States a lot in the last couple of years, um, I've definitely yeah, yeah, learned a bit more about some of the intricacies of American history and the slave history, um, mm. the emancipation. Yeah, it's all been very interesting because you, I guess, especially being in Australia, we're so far away from everything, you know, it's very like one dimensional for us. We only read about it in textbooks or get uh-huh. snippets of it on the news or in, in media and stuff. Yeah, it's not until you actually go to the States and travel around and, and talk with people and go to all these, you know, prominent spots. Um, you know, places in Washington and stand on the, the steps of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial and see where Martin mm. Luther gave his speech and stuff, you know, all this stuff that sure. you just hear about, learn about. Really cool to go and see it all and actually live and breathe it, you know? For sure. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's the same with, uh, I lived in uh, China for four years and it was very cool. much transformational in my understanding of China because I'd read a little bit, but being there definitely changes. Yeah, China's place. Visited there three times, just visiting, just hot, just traveling around. But uh, went and paid my respects to Chairman Mao. Some flowers <laughs> in. Oh man, so, that is crazy. The crazy yeah. place. I I tried to go there three times, yeah. and all three times I could not make it. I was like, I was I was there in front of the building, and the first right. time it was closed because it was a holiday. The second time it was a right. Monday and it was closed, and the third time my fiance at the time had forgotten her ID and couldn't go in. So oh, no. I didn't go without. Oh, no. So I've still never seen Mao. Oh no! <laughs> oh, got it. I remember it was a long line. We stood in line for a long time, uh-huh. and then I think we actually stood a couple of hours in line to see Ho Chi Minh in Hanoi in oh, yeah. Vietnam, and then uh, we also were lucky enough to go and see uh, uh, Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il in North Korea. Wow! In Pyongyang. Wow! Yeah. And that was all in the same couple of months of each other. It was a real communist uh, <laughs> pilgrimage. I'm just missing. I'm just missing Landon in, in the red square and then I've got a ball. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. a fun trip. That was a yeah. distinguished world leaders tour you took there. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it was good fun. <laughs> Very interesting. Nice, nice. All right. So, so, so would you say probably James Cook then or would you say Arthur Phillip? Who would you say, I would say if you were to choose one? Yeah, if I was to choose one, um, it'd be it'd be hard to choose between them. But I think, on a more well-known scale, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Captain Cook, James Cook, would be more well-known and more attributed with more like founding-like qualities. Mm. Um, yeah. But if you were to speak to you know like historians or people who you know more know more than just the lay person, um, they would point out that um, it's probably harder to sail 11 boats out here with, with rebellious <laughs> convicts and actually try and set up 
the first, you know, civilization here <laughs> yeah, um, sure. than just to sail up and down the coast and make some maps and name some points. Mm. So even though Cook was probably more founder-ish, um, yeah, Philip definitely had a had a hard job. I wouldn't want his job. For sure, for sure. I like the, the sailing and naming and mapping sounds a lot more fun than, than <laughs> trying to look after Catholic rebels. Oh, gosh, yeah, that would not be fun on a ship right yeah. in the middle of the American Revolution, apparently. Right, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think Cook's legacy hangs around a lot longer because um, uh, up and down the coast, um, especially on the eastern seaboard where the majority of the population lives, um, a lot of places are named um, either after Cook or he named them. Mm, okay. Uh, he gave them their name. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of spots, that, obviously a lot of spots that carry British names, and a lot mm. of them were named by Cook as he was going up and down, making the maps and charting the areas. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. But then on the same time, Arthur Philip, I mean, when he came, um, uh, Sydney is named after the like Lord Admiral or something, uh, Sydney, who put together the idea of sending the 11 boats out here and, and gave Arthur Philip his job. So when Arthur Philip got here and set up the little township, he named the place Sydney after his boss to obviously give his boss a big pat on the back. So yeah, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of history and a lot of... Um, you know, legends hanging around from both of them. But yeah, I would say on a more well-known scale, James Cook would be gotcha. a more standout well-known guy. Yeah. Okay. So, so what, what could you, uh, could you tell me about James Cook? Do you, how much of the story do you know, like infinite no, amounts of his story? Cause you've done your tour guiding or do you just know a little uh, bit? Or? Little bits, bits and pieces enough, enough to, uh, <laughs> enough to, and, and make myself sound smart in front of paying guests. <laughs> That's, That's what this podcast is about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's no good if no one's listening, right? And and uh, it's got to keep the listeners happy. So, yeah, I mean, I know that he was uh, originally from Yorkshire, um, and he uh, had done obviously a lot of sailing. Um, was a part of the the British Navy. Um, I know that when he took his trip and visited out here in 1770, uh, he wasn't actually a captain at the time. He was he died a captain. He was made a captain afterwards, um, but at the time he was of a different rank. Even though we call him Captain James Cook, and he died as Captain James Cook at the time, he actually wasn't captain. Which was a fun fact that I didn't know until I yeah had done some more research on the whole story. Um, yeah. Obviously, he's quite well known in other parts as well. He visited New Zealand and had some influence there. I know that he visited Hawaii at least once. I know there's a few um, remnants of, of Cook around Hawaii. I've been to a few little Cook monuments and things uh -huh. named after him stuff. Doesn't sound much louder than the birds we get here. On two sides of our house, we've got bushland and we've got a lot of noisy birds here in Australia. Oh, yeah. Nice. And um, yeah, a few times I've been recording things or just on the phone to, to people and they're like, what is that noise in the background? You know, and you're inside and everything. And the, the, uh, it sounds like chainsaws. Some of the birds, they're so loud. Oh, so and we have one, this one bird called a kookaburra and it, it makes like a laughing monkey sound. <laughs> and if you, if you don't know, if it's your first time here, we can convince people that we have monkeys in the trees because this fairly moderate, like modest sized bird makes this really loud monkey laughing like me. And it, um, yeah, it always, always people out the first time they come visit. So. That's funny. 
Um, but yeah, James Cook. Um, so he got yeah, to he Hawaii and New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was pretty influential around the sort of uh, Pacific Ocean, South Pacific. Um, he yeah sailed up and down the Australian East Coast. Allegedly, one of the first, if not the first, Europeans to do so, mm. um, because. Obviously, Australia back in those days, um, being very, very far from Europe, uh, coming to the East Coast was even a lot further and a lot more dangerous, I think, a bit more of a treacherous, longer sail than going to the West Coast. Mm. So the West Coast had already been visited by a lot of Europeans. They say uh, Spanish, Portuguese, and in particular Dutch had visited okay. a lot of the West Coast. And uh, I think even before the Europeans started visiting, they were convinced that there was a big land mass in the south of the world because it had to balance out the northern land mass being Europe, right? <laughs> Otherwise, it would fall over. Makes sense? <laughs> yeah. So before they even knew the land mass was here, they just theorized that the land mass was here and they called it um, Australis, meaning great southern land or big southern land. Oh, okay. um, Australis, yeah. And so they just happened to be right, but obviously not for the, the logic that they had. So they all came down here and explored and, and charted a lot of the West Coast. And they say that the Dutch either visited the most or visited first, and they actually gave it its first um, official sort of European name, and they actually called it New Holland. Oh, okay. Huh. obviously, you know, very creative days back then. There was, there was already Holland, and they said, well, we can't call it Holland 2.0. We've already got a Holland, so let's call it New Holland. Same with like New New uh, New York and New Amsterdam, yeah. you know. Uh -huh. um, and I, I think so, New York actually was named New Holland before it became. New even York. it was taken over by the British. <laughs> They're like, oh, we need another a new New Holland because we lost our old New Holland. Um, <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, they visited a bunch. It was called New Holland, but then yeah, Cook was the first to come over and, and visit the East Coast. But because the Dutch had never set up shop here, they'd never colonized, it was still seen as vacant land. And they, they used to use the term, which is very controversial now, called terra, terra nullius, which is a Latin-based name meaning land belonging to no one. Oh, and it was, okay. on that, it was on that false premise that the Europeans decided to colonize, to come and live here. Because obviously they ignored or didn't recognize any land ownership by the indigenous Australians. Mm -hmm. And so they deemed that this land was yet to be colonized. No one was living here. It was land up for grabs. It was for free. And so it was on the back of Cook mapping it and claiming that it was empty open land ready for the taking mm -hmm. um, that they then sent the first fleet, those 11 ships with Arthur Phillip later on. Um, but the, they didn't really think there was much on offer here. They didn't really find any great crops or any lucrative minerals or natural resources or anything. Mm. Uh, when the Europeans all visited the East Coast, it's very dry. It's literally like desert meets ocean. So they're like, <laughs> can't grow anything. There is nothing on offer. It is a waste of land. And like, you know, obviously it's going to be no good to the colony. We can't make any money out of this. Mm. But they decided they wanted to come to the East Coast. The East Coast had a bit more going on. It wasn't as dry. Um, it wasn't as barren. Um, and so he came out here. But I believe that um, originally Cook was in the South Pacific uh, in 1769 before he came to, to visit Australia. Um, and they were somewhere near Tahiti. 
and supposedly they were there for like a science experiment. They were trying to measure um, the, some distances in the solar system. They were using a, I think it was called a micrometer or some sort of um, old school measuring device. Um, and it only happens every, I think it's every like 300 years or so oh, when yeah. Mars, Mars makes a, a track, makes a, a orbit in front of the sun. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And for about six minutes, you can see a little black dot and that's Mars passing in front of the sun. And it only happens every couple of hundred years. It happened a few years ago and it won't happen again for another couple of hundred years. Wow. And so they knew that this was happening. And with this instrument, whatever it was, um, they believed that they could measure the distance from here to Mars and Mars to the sun or whatever it was. And they could actually make some of these measurements. So that was originally the mission. That's what they were doing. And okay. only after, only after they made, did these measurements, and only after Mars made its pass in front of the sun, did they have their new orders, and their new orders were to sail to the uncharted coast of New Holland at the time, and see what's there. Go and check out the east coast, make some maps, let us know if there's anyone living there or not, or if it's free land because we uh, we may need it in the future. Um, name a few places and um, you know <laughs> give it the full report. And so that was, his, that was his trip, but it was only after a different mission that he got this new mission, you know? Mm. So it was kind of like packed on to the, the back of another expedition. It's like, oh, well, while you're in the air, <laughs> you go check this out for us. Go and scope this out. Um, and that, I believe he... Yeah, very thorough, yeah. It's a long way to come for two trips, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you go to the grocery store, you don't want to forget that one thing and then have to go back. That's right. That's terrible. So, um, and I believe he only made one visit. It was the one and only time. Um, yeah, he didn't, didn't ever get to come back. And um, yeah, he sailed up and down a lot of uh, the East Coast, um, named a lot of places, a few after him or a few um, after different types of British things. Um, so yeah, and I know that um, there's here in Sydney, we have uh, Botany Bay. Um, which is a very sort of like shallow, not well protected. And he also made note that um, it didn't have much fresh water. Whereas he said a little further north of there, there's another harbor, another like water inlet that's much deeper. So it's very good for anchorage. Um, it's like big headlands. So it's good for protection from, from wind and the weather. And they found water sources, fresh water sources. And so on the back of the, his notes, supposedly he wrote, pretty copious, pretty good detailed notes and drew good maps. Yeah. Um, when Arthur Philip came back, um, they off of the back of his notes went into what we now know as Sydney Harbour instead of setting up shop in Botany Bay, just down, just around, the, around the corner. So, um, yeah, again, I think a lot of his like charting and mapping and just investigations and his, his reports and his diaries and stuff were, were pretty pretty useful and helpful and pretty influential in, in all the stories to come from that. For sure. For sure. So, yeah. so how did, how did Sydney end up? Is it, is it that close where it's kind of Sydney one side is one bay and one side is the other or yeah, how did yeah, Sydney really, end up down by Botany Bay? Yeah. Just a couple of, just a couple of, as the crow flies in a straight line, just a couple of kilometers. Oh yeah. Okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. Very close. Um, so like Sydney airport now, the main airport is on Botany Bay. 
but mm-hmm. Sydney City is on Sydney Harbour. And oh, to drive okay. from the city to the airport, so to drive from Sydney Harbour to Botany Bay on the other side would take you 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah. yeah, that makes so sense. So not much. You know, yeah, yeah. There, there are two kind of water inlets quite close to each other. Body Bay is a lot smaller, um, and Sydney Harbour is really big, and it's got a lot of like tributary sort of creeks and canals and stuff. You know, mm. so it's um, yeah, it's it's quite big and beautiful. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've seen some pictures. Yeah. So now, did he have any sort of like a uh, any sort of personality quirks like Ned Kelly, where he's or was he kind of just a captain in the Navy and this was his job and he did it well and named these Good places? Question. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he probably did, but there's none that are, none that I know of that are super famous or well-known or kind of etched into folklore <laughs> or anything like that. Um, he was kind yeah. of a run, just like a, a sale by founder then. He was, he yeah. was here and then he was gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think he did everything sort of by the book and, and was very studious and, um, you know, stayed in, stayed in line. Um, yeah, I mean, kind I'm Kind of the I'm opposite sure of Ned was, Kelly then. Yeah, very, very much the opposite of Ned <laughs> Kelly. Um, yeah, didn't go out of his lane, um, did as he's told. And, um, I mean, either he didn't really have anything too noteworthy, like about himself or just – his story, the founder's story, was way bigger than any personal things that it, it's yeah. just become the focus of a bigger picture rather than a, an individual. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, Good. and I guess it's been a while. And, and I guess when you're the captain, um, if you did have any weird quirks, um, you'd make sure they were never told, right? Because you get to <laughs> write right. the history. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it works. Be weird and totally uh, sporadic and bipolar, it's not going to go in the history books. So. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of being the captain. <laughs> for sure for sure yeah i know kinda... that um i know that on i'm fairly sure i'm fairly sure that on his boat he had a botanist called mm. joseph banks okay and together they were both very sciencey and mathematic and and joseph banks is semi well known in australia for his botany contributions of naming and categorizing a lot of the native Australian um, plants and animals. Okay, nice. So, yeah, um, anything to do with plants and animals, Banks is, is yeah, got a lot of history in that, um, documenting them and categorizing them and all that sort of stuff. And he even named a few. We have a, a plant that's quite well-known that's native to Australia called the Banksia, and it's named after him. <laughs> In you know nice. very modest, modest <laughs> ways back in those days where they used to name a lot of things after themselves. But yeah, yeah. we had a plant named after um, after him. Um, so yeah, I believe that on that kind of research and reconnaissance mission, yeah, they were very maths and sciencey and and yeah. That's it for the interview for today. Thank you, Alan McLeod. I look forward to getting a podcast out to y'all all next week on Australia. <laughs>